And we are back with another episode of the podcast. Hi again, everybody. I'm Josh Warden with the Beaver Tales podcast, where I talk with former Oregon State athletes about their time at OSU and the lessons they've learned since leaving Corvallis. And the athlete I'm talking with today has gone pretty far from Corvallis. Caitlin Driscoll is my guest from the Oregon State volleyball team, originally from Littleton, Colorado. She was an outside hitter on the Oregon State volleyball team from 2012 to 2016. She had an interesting Oregon State career and professional volleyball career afterwards. She's had four ACL surgeries. We talk about that and how that affected her playing time and what she's doing now. There's a moment early in our conversation where we talk about an important match to her, uh, one of her first Pac-12 matches when she was a true freshman back in 2012, where Oregon State was facing Colorado. One of the first times she was playing in Guild Coliseum against a Pac-12 opponent, and Oregon State defeated the Buffaloes three sets to one. And uh, she explains not too much drama, but some more you know interesting things happening with those two programs and why that match against Colorado was particularly important to her. And that's kind of the first thing we talk about in this conversation. So I think you'll be interested by that story. She also gets into uh, what she's done since Oregon State in volleyball and coaching, playing professionally, and where she's living now. There was a moment where we actually talk about the Philippines for a while because she played professional volleyball there in Southeast Asia. And so she's got some interesting stories of what that looked like and our connection in the Philippines because I spent seven months there in the Philippines after graduating college. And it didn't occur to me until after our conversation, I had to reach out to her again and say, hey, what, what exact timeline were you there in the Philippines for? Because I forgot to ask if we overlapped at all. And she said it was you know 2017 from August through November. And I realized, gosh, that was that was when I was there, too. We overlapped for a couple months, and she was in Mandaluyong, which was only 11 miles from where I was at in Antipolo, which are both near the capital of Manila. And so without even knowing it, and we had not met each other at that point, we were in Southeast Asia 11 miles apart from each other for a couple of months there. So a crazy little connection there, and she'll sh- share what she was doing there in the Philippines, where, if nothing else, it must have been a crazy experience for her. For the record, the average height for Americans... American females, five foot three. That's the average here in the U.S. In the Philippines, which is the third shortest country in the world, the average height for women is four foot eleven. So consider the disparity of an average person there in the Philippines, average female being four foot eleven. Caitlin is six foot five. So consider how much uh, she would stand out for not for one uh, there in the Philippines. So she had a fun experience there. Uh, she's now in Melbourne, Australia. And she'll explain how she got there down under. She's the second guest I've had from Australia. Jarmal Reed joined me recently on the podcast. And they're not too far apart. I mean, relatively speaking, they're about a three-hour drive away. But, you know, being in Australia, of all places, they're relatively close to each other. And when Caitlin learned that I had Jarmal on, she said, oh, I got to text him and see where he's at. So that was fun to connect two of the guests to then reach out to each other. So that was fun to hear. Today's featured nonprofit on the podcast is actually... Philippines related. I like to mention a charity on each episode and give some free exposure to nonprofits who are doing cool things around the world. And there was a charity I was involved with while there in the Philippines called Children's Garden. It's basically a home for kids who are living on the street or homeless and they're anywhere from age 8 to 16 usually. They don't really age them out and they even have another home for these kids once they get to 18 years old if they're not ready to move on to the next step in life. But they've got a home for about 12 to 15 boys who they receive education and a safe place to live and food, tutoring, mentoring. 
I know the couple that lives there. It's an American man and a, a Filipino wife. They met there in the Philippines, got married, and they run this organization called Children's Garden uh, there in the Philippines. You can check out them online and donate, help out with what they've got going on at uh, their website, childrensgarden.ph. That's childrensgarden.ph. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. I think you'll enjoy this fun conversation I had with Caitlin. So representing the Oregon State volleyball team on the Beaver Tales podcast, here is Caitlin Driscoll. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing real well. Thanks for uh, being the second Australian, or at least new Australian, to join me on the podcast. Joining Jarmal Reed, also from Australia, should be fun to catch up with you. Let's go back to your Oregon State career. Kind of get some favorite memories from OSU and and um, what you were doing back in Corvallis when you're originally from Colorado, from Littleton, Colorado, and you were there 2012 to 2016, kind of the last five years of the Terry Liskevich era. So when you came to Oregon State, what were some early highlights and memories of those five years there, a favorite match or a a memory that you daydream a lot about even to today? Oh gosh, there's so many. I guess to start, I was actually not supposed to come to Oregon State. I was committed to go to University of Colorado for quite some time and some politics ended up happening there to where Um, I ended up decommitting and uh, needed to find a school in quite a short amount of time. And Oregon State was interested from the very beginning. And luckily, they were still interested towards the end. And so I guess all of my favorite memories kind of started once Pac-12 play began my freshman year. Uh, I had no business starting on the team. And um, I worked my way up into practice and was able to start, which was really cool as a freshman and as someone who started their career pretty late for volleyball terms. But that first game that we got to play against Colorado was a pretty special one for me. So you get to face the very team you thought you'd be playing against and, and get to kind of have that moment there. How difficult was that to really expect you're going to be playing for the Buffaloes and whether that was something on their end that was weird or whatever happened there? I mean, what, how did that go to kind of have to switch your mindset and realize my expectations of my college career aren't going to come true and I even haven't even really gotten to college yet? Right. Um, You know, when all that stuff happened uh, with a decommitment, they were doing some pretty shady things behind my back that I wasn't sure of. And so it really put a pretty sour taste in my mouth as far as the school in general. I've grown up in Colorado. I love Colorado. I've always been a CU fan. And so when politics happened and when they're recruiting behind my back and kind of having me as a backup, even though I'm committed, it, it really shook me. And so when I went in to play them at uh, Oregon State, it it was just something that I I didn't want revenge. I'm not a I'm not a spiteful person, but I did want to be able to just prove myself and be like, this is a player you could have had on your team, but instead, you know, you screwed it up, and here I am at Oregon State, still doing my thing and thriving. Honestly, doing better than I think I would have been doing at Colorado, anyways. For that commitment, if you don't mind me asking, I, I won't put you on the spot and I can edit this out if you don't want to, but what did happen with Colorado that made you switch to Oregon State and the shady stuff that was going on? Oh, it's just crazy. I I guess to make matters short, Colorado was never on my list. I always wanted to go out of state. Um, and then they really reached out and they're like, come for an official visit. Like we got a big surprise. Come on, like, let's do it. So my parents were like, I think you should go. So I ended up going up to Boulder and they had brought in 
six or seven other players from around the nation who I had played with previously on a USA team. And there was like, again, six or seven other people there and they pulled the like Brady Bunch card. Like if you commit, will you commit? And if you commit, are you going to commit? And like, you guys can just change the legacy of CU. Like you guys can do this together. And with the talent that we had in that room, I truly believed that we could change the legacy of the volleyball program there. And sure enough, one girl commits and another girl commits. And I'm like, okay, we're doing this. Like, this is awesome. So I ended up committing and committing probably much too young and um, probably too early for me to even really tell what I wanted in a school. It was my only visit that I had gone on. I basically committed and I stopped looking. I just, that was it for me. In that time that I was committed, probably about a year, they were recruiting international players. And one by one, they kind of started dropping off people saying, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're going through this uh, or we don't need your position anymore. So sorry, you're going to have to look for a new school. In my case, it was that my high school GPA was not uh, good enough because CU was trying to become a private school. Um, the coach had actually come to my house, sat down with my family and I, and straight up told me that they were trying to become a private school. My GPA was not good enough. However, in that meeting, my club coach, who is just one of those people who just has that sixth sense, she's connected in every way, shape or form. She looks out for her players and treats them like her own kids. And I happened to get a text message from her that night while with the CU coach that said, hey, be careful, word on the street is they're recruiting international players and they're trying to get rid of some of their previous commits. And I was sitting in that meeting with her and I called her out. My parents looked at me really wide-eyed, like, what are you talking about? How do you know what's going on? And from then on, it was just, uh, sorry, see you later, you're lost, not mine. Wow. How old were you in that first commitment where they brought you all in and you said you were young? Was that kind of early in your high school career? Uh, I think it was beginning of my junior year and I'm pretty young. So I think I would have been late 16, if not early 17 when that happened. So yeah, I was pretty young and I only started playing volleyball competitively when I was 15. So, wow. um, this, this was a big deal for me. This was big. So they get you all to commit with an odd recruiting tactic that worked in a sense. Did, and I it suppose it would have been nice if it just went on from there and they actually signed you all would have been odd but okay cool you go and play but then they say we've got this but let's search for something better at the expense of the girls who already committed at that point I'm, I'm guessing it was just a verbal commit but it still right. seems I don't know that you know NCAA clearinghouse which doesn't even really exist anymore that right. you know the financial aid agreements that work but when it's a verbal commitment were there any conversations with the NCAA of like, hey, they had a scholarship offer for me and they took it away. And in terms of what's allowed and not allowed, could there be any repercussions for that sort of thing? Or did you talk to anyone about that? Um, yeah, you know, I'm no expert in that field either. Um, it, it is unfortunate that a verbal commitment is truly just a verbal commitment. You know, you expect the school to uphold their standard as well as they expect you to hold up your word. The weird thing was I had actually already been admitted into their school. I had already applied to the school, had been admitted. And so I had gone through that entire process. So it was hard for what she was saying, you know, with, with them trying to become a private school, which is obviously fake. I mean, they're not a private school, but yeah, it's just one of those things where when people do catch word of this, which it caught word 
fast. I don't know how it caught word fast, but there's all these, you know, volleyball blogs and people talking about recruiting and top 100, you know, players in the nation, whatever, which I don't even think I was in, but people found out about it fast. And it became a, is this, is this a Caitlin problem? Is she a diva? Is she a person who just decommits and can't hold up her commitments? Or is this a CU problem? And it kind of started to weigh on me because it, it happened, like I said, just so fast. There was no defending it. I had parents and players at club practices and tournaments coming up and asking me what actually happened and all this stuff. I, and again, I never thought it was this like big deal. Like it obviously hurt me. It really sucked, but it was one of those things. I can't change it. And if they're going to do that to me, I don't want to go to that school anyways. All right, quick interruption here in the interview. Hopefully you're enjoying this really fascinating conversation with Caitlin Driscoll about the beginning of her college career. I do want to clarify something in this interview, because like I said, I didn't fully know the NCAA violations and situations about when teams can rescind offers. And is that a violation of what they did? So I checked after this conversation with a friend of mine who works in compliance. And so maybe you're curious about this as well. Here's how it works. When a team offers a scholarship to a student athlete, that player can verbally commit, but there's really no formality or certainty about it until the financial aid agreement is signed then the school is obligated to pay the student whatever money and scholarship is listed there in that agreement. Technically, the team can take that player off the roster at any point. There's no certainty about that, but they still have to play, pay the player that scholarship that they've determined. With a verbal commit before they've been enrolled in the school or uh, sign a financial aid agreement, the program actually can take that scholarship offer away even after the student athlete has committed to it. Now, it's really shady and not an honorable move, what Colorado did, but they did not break any NCAA violations. Again, not a good look on them. And as Caitlin said, if that's what they did, I'd rather go somewhere else anyway. So maybe it's good that she didn't sign a financial aid agreement there and was able to just commit to Oregon State. But I do want to clarify, no, she didn't just unveil some NCAA violation that we're breaking on this podcast is just a shady move that technically is not a violation. And it's worth pointing out that we're not really hearing Colorado's side of the story and however they would justify it. But for what it's worth, whether surprising or not, not against the rules. All right, back to the finish of this part of the conversation and then what Caitlin Driscoll has done since Oregon State. That's all coming up in this conversation. Back to the interview. And here's the ironic full circle thing that makes you look like the good guy in all this is that by the end of your Oregon State career, you were a Pac-12 all-academic honorable mention when they were trying to say your GPA wasn't good enough. And I don't know what your GPA was. Share it if you want to. But that was the thing they were trying to say, well, this is why we don't want Caitlin Driscoll on our team. Yeah, it was, I mean, to be honest, I don't even remember what my GPA was in high school because it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a question. Like, again, I'd already been admitted into the school. So the fact that they tried to pull that, I mean, was obviously so confusing. She brought out this flow chart, like it was full on. And so if I had not gotten that text message from my club coach in that meeting, I mean, I probably still would have been left wondering why. So it was the universe just aligned in that meeting and right. it was for the better. <laughs> so you had only been a volleyball player for a few years at that point, And you have one college fall from underneath you, Oregon state swoops in and you get to go to Corvallis. And like you mentioned, if it was kind of weird to figure out people are asking me questions about why, what happened and you're trying to explain and you can't 
you know, tell everybody the right thing or get everybody to agree with you. But at that point, where were you at as a player and off the court in terms of trying to just get your head straight and you're only 18 years old and people are already questioning your actions. So did you have to use some sort of mental fortitude you hadn't had before to realize I just got to take care of myself and go through something difficult even before you ever played in your first match in college volleyball? Yeah, you know, I never really, I never really struggled with that part. It was more that I knew I had it in me to become a player that a college team wanted. Coming out of high school, I will admit, I was not a player that even deserved to be playing at a Division One level. I was just tall. I had the work ethic, but I did not have the skill. <laughs> but in volleyball, they always say you can't teach height, and I just happened to have the height. So. That was nice. But luckily, Emily Heiza, who was a coach there at the time, now Emily Cohan, she's at CSU now, but she was actually a club coach at my club back in Colorado. Having her on my side to just have my back and be able to teach me and kind of run me through, I guess, similar practices to what I was used to in club just made the transition really easy. I'm not sure what was discussed amongst the coaches as far as me coming in, but Mark Barnard, who I talked to a lot as far as the recruiting process came, I think he understood that there was probably something going on and that this was a big dream of mine and I wouldn't have done anything to jeopardize that. And so having them on my side, knowing what the situation was, was something that was really nice to have. Mark Barnard, who is a native Australian too, and he's now the head coach at Oregon State, became the head coach right after you finished your career, basically. And so he was the assistant under your head coach, Terry Laskevich. And speaking of kind of highlights and memories of Oregon State that 2014 season must have been a a pretty solid one you were second on the team and kills that year so whatever skill you needed to develop you were certainly at least in that process by 2014 (laughs) and an Oregon State program that had never won an NCAA tournament game wins two that year you make it to the sweet 16 so how satisfying was that both personally of you can't teach hype and you had that and you had some skill and the team had some remarkable success that year too Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I get goosebumps with you just even saying that. It's so funny. Um, You know, coming, gosh, those first two years were pretty difficult. I battled multiple injuries and it was, it was troublesome. And so coming into that 2014 season, I mean, I had a lot to catch up on. I was not fit. I was not strong. Luckily, I've always had a heavy arm, which in volleyball is good, makes the ball go down a lot quicker. But uh, that season was just the best group of girls I could have ever imagined being with. It was the best experience. I mean, we really, as a unit, just decided what our goal was, and we went after it. And it was the coolest, coolest thing. I mean, I truly can't even put into words what an experience that was. And the effort and um, time and determination that we put into that season. It was just insane. So you have that 2014 season. You mentioned the injuries a little bit, and that was a part of your Oregon State story and what you were going through. And uh, 2012, you were actually playing as a true freshman and play the first half of the seasons or so and then miss the the rest of that year with an injury you didn't play in 2013 so it wasn't until until that really successful 2014 season where you came back uh where I mean you've had multiple knee injuries so where was that 2012 one in the string of your saga of knee problems and where was your personal well-being at when you experienced that at Oregon State and had a chunk of your college career taken away 
yeah, well, it wasn't even the beginning. I mean, I was, I had an injury almost every year and it was something I had never battled before. The most I had ever had was a dislocated pinky finger before college. I mean, I was never, ever hurt. And so getting a massive ACL injury, it was like, I want to say the third or fourth game into the Pac-12. We had just played Colorado, which was so, so satisfying for me. And then next was Utah at our home court. And it was kind of a freak accident almost. Uh, We were playing Utah. I was playing on the outside and a ball got shanked in the back, in the back row towards our bench, kind of where I was standing. And so I went and chased after that ball and just took one wrong step. And my knee just went insane. It just popped. It sounded like someone had shot a gun through my ear and I was down. That was just, that was it. I knew exactly what had happened from other people telling me about ACL injuries. I just knew that this was it. And, oh, it was just so devastating. And I had played like one point in one game too many in order to take a medical redshirt that year. So I lost my entire freshman year, um, which was really bad. And then I had a lot of complications with that knee as far as the surgery goes, as far as rehab went, and I actually had to get a second surgery. So I missed my true sophomore year, but was able to get a medical redshirt for that year. Um, And that brings us to 2014. So those were the two injuries. And then there's plenty more after. (laughs) I'm sure we'll touch on it as we go through your career. So you finish your OSU career in 2016. At that point, you have an opportunity. I'm not sure if it was right afterwards, but you go overseas and play in a professional career. So what were your options coming out of college? And I don't know if there's a an American professional volleyball league, but there are some places overseas. So how did you come to uh, Southwest Asia of all places or Southeast Asia? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. Uh, So yeah, because 2016 was technically my redshirt senior year, I could have finished school um, in June of 2017, but I just was able to finish winter of 2016. The professional seasons don't really start until August of that next year. There is no American Volleyball Professional League yet. There's word on the street that they are opening one. It is an invite-only sort of league of its own. It's going to be really interesting. That might be implemented here within the next couple years. But yeah, otherwise you have to go overseas to Asia. Europe is probably the most popular, but there's, you know, Puerto Rico or South America. There's all these different places that you can go and play. I was not able to navigate that on my own. So I ended up getting an agent uh, who was based out of Canada and his name was Steve Welsh. He's a really awesome, awesome agent for any of those volleyball players out there uh, listening, (laughs) get in contact with Steve. He's great. But uh, Steve kind of walked me through. He understood my expectations as far as maybe the level I wanted to play at, but also the scenery and towns I might want to be in. Um, I had a lot of friends or previous people who I knew who played in these really small towns. And I mean, they're basically playing volleyball, eating and sleeping in the same facility. And it's like, oh, I don't really want to do that. You know, I want to have a little bit of freedom, be able to get out and explore, be close to other things that I can maybe take a weekend trip to or something like that. And the Philippines popped up and he was like, well, what do you think of it? At first I was pretty hesitant. I'm not going to lie. I'd never been to Asia. I uh, 
didn't really know a lot about Asia. And I had a previous teammate, Laura Shout, who played uh, two seasons there before I did. And she's a hometown girl from Philomath. She is one of my best friends. And I'm like, okay, if she can survive this, I can survive this. And so I ended up choosing to go play there. And it was a really great decision. Yeah. So you go to the Philippines and perhaps there's a connection with the beginning of your college career because your expectations of college may have been, I'm playing for the Buffaloes. I get to stay in state and play for my favorite team. And that very quickly was not the case for your college career. So it turned out well and you enjoyed Oregon State, but it was vastly different than your anticipations. Your expectations of your professional career were, I'm going to go to the Philippines and you probably didn't know how long you'd stay there, but I'm guessing you were somewhat hopeful about what that would look like. And similar to the beginning of your college career, very quickly, things looked a lot differently. So taking you to the beginning of your professional volleyball career in the Philippines, and again, things did not go how you thought they would. Yeah, um, they did. They definitely did not. So I got there. I was really hopeful. The Philippines League is really different. They essentially bring in two powerhouse Americans or foreigners. I actually played with a Croatian who played at U of A. So I knew who she was right off the bat, which was really cool because she was my teammate. But they bring in these huge powerhouse hitters. And then it's like a Filipino defense versus these foreign hitters. And it's just it's a lot on your body. It's a lot of wear and tear. I mean, you're getting set 75 times a game, which is not normal. That's a lot of sets per game. And you're just taking swing after swing after swing. And your body really doesn't have a lot of time to rest and relax. But I had trained so hard um, in the time that I graduated college to the time that I went over and played professional. And I was ready. I was ready to go. Practices had been going well. I had a little like minor setback with some tricep issues. They they weight lift a lot different down there. And so some of these new exercises that they had us doing, my body was pretty sore to an extent where like swinging a ball was pretty hard. But uh, yeah, I was playing in an exhibition game probably about a month or month and a half into my career. And it was the last point of the last set. We were playing a college team just for some practice and a defensive player had dove right where my path of my approach and my block was and there was some sweat on the ground and I just casually stepped sideways it was not a dynamic move nothing I just casually stepped sideways I my knee was in instant pain I continued on with the point finished the play and then I just sat down and I'm like, something is not right. And instantly I could not put pressure on it. I couldn't walk. I couldn't bend my knee. I'm like, okay, this is weird. But there was no pop. There was no click, which from my previous ACL injuries was the case. And so I was really confused on what was happening. And turns out I went and got an MRI and it was a very interesting case where the tunnels that your ACL gets put into during a reconstruction, the tunnels in your bones, it had just come out of the tunnel. It had popped out of the tunnel. My tunnel had widened from the amount of exercise and volleyball that I was doing. It widened, I think they said from five millimeters, which is standard. And I was at like 22 millimeters. Uh, so it was bound to happen at some point, And they just said, that's why that little move, it just happened. It was going to happen at some point. So it was a big devastation. That was yet another ACL injury, not a complete rupture like you'd had before, but it, it basically came out at 
So the ACL is just hanging at that point. Have you had surgery to fix that? Or do you essentially just not have an ACL that's connected anymore? Uh, yeah, I did end up having surgery, but it was so strange because after I battled with not being able to walk, not having crutches tall enough in the Philippines, might I add, we had to, we yeah. had to make shift some crutches, which was really hard. But uh, yeah, after about two weeks of just kind of trying to strengthen and heal it, at least so that I could fly home safely. Um, that's the doctors were worried about me flying home with blood clots or something like that happening. Um, so I was just trying to, you know, keep it healthy and get some strength back in it. And one morning I woke up and went to go grab my crutches and I stood and I was like, my knee feels fine. And I lunged and I squatted and I jumped and I pivoted and everything was fine. And I'm like, well, what the heck? I can play. Like, get me a brace. I'll play. <laughs> the general managers of the team did not like that answer. They wanted me to obviously go home and get it fixed. They were really sad to see me go, as was I. It was so devastating. But I went home and turns out that it was a two-part series of an ACL reconstruction. I had to go get the first surgery right when I got home and basically get my knee cleaned completely out. They had to take out the ACL. They had to patch up the holes. Um, and those had to heal for four months. And then after that, I went in and got a complete ACL reconstruction again, and then ended up rehabbing for about another year to a year and a half before I decided, no, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. My body just can't take it anymore. So that was the a whole series of surgeries there. And even your freshman year, when you tore it at Oregon State, you had to have two surgeries that time. So I'm almost losing track. What are the, what's the final statistics on the number of times that you've torn it and the number of surgeries that you have? And it also, is, was it on the same knee or was this both knees back and forth? What's the whole box score on your, on your knee injuries? Yeah, you know, I kind of lose count too. Uh, it's on the same knee. I've had four total surgeries, but I think it's been two complete reconstructions. The other surgeries were to either fix things or patch things or whatever, remove things. Um, but I think two full reconstructions. Then add a shoulder surgery in there, my end of my Oregon State career as well in 2015. And you've got the full recipe right there. <laughs> I've never felt so lucky to have only torn my ACL one time. <laughs> oh, one's enough though. I mean, I feel your pain. It's, it is just brutal. It's brutal for anyone yeah. who's done it. They just know it's just a terrible, terrible injury. So that one basically ends your professional volleyball career. You got to spend some time in the Philippines and at least enjoy the culture and the food there. Uh, did you ever try one of the classic dishes or snack foods there in the Philippines. It's fermented duck egg and it's called balut. Did you ever try balut while you were there? Oh, you know, it, it was a daily thing that my teammates would try to get me to try. Um, it was the place that we practiced at this gym. It was out front of this great street that had all this amazing Filipino street food. And I tried just about everything but that because that was their pre-game or pre-practice snack. And they were like, you know, here, it'll help your knee here. It'll make you stronger here. It will make your skin look beautiful. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I cannot do it. I couldn't even look at it. It was, yeah, I, to this day, I'm still totally fine with not have tried that. 
I don't blame you. It is high in sodium, so maybe it would give you the energy. And uh, I mean, I remember having it when I was in the Philippines, and you can see the beak and the you know, it's fully, uh, fully formed, but it, you are, it's not something you get commonly in America. So I don't blame you for that, but. So you uh, actually tried it when it you were there. Been, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, okay. What does it taste like? Because they kept trying to convince me it was like a chicken broth, like chicken soup. But what was your take? I mean, they're not wrong, but that's not really the full explanation. Like they're making it sound simple. Like, oh, it's just, it's just chicken soup and sure like i guess on paper that you could describe it tasting like that but when you're eating a like a fermented duck egg where you can see the bird there it's not going to be just (laughs) soup so they're they're selling it short but i mean it's normal to them so i get why it feels usual (laughs) yeah but it it was it it. was good i i didn't do it a second time but i'm glad (laughs) i did it one time (laughs) Maybe if I go Uh, back, maybe I'll get your courage, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah. So you move on from volleyball at that point. Tell me about how difficult it was to finally say I'm done playing professional volleyball and what that led to in some volleyball coaching and some other enterprises since then. So what was your transition like as a person and and, uh, everything off the court once you finally were done with volleyball officially? Yeah. I mean, if I'm being honest, I'm still in that transition period. I don't know if I have fully or will ever fully accept that. I feel like my time was cut very short. Like I said, I started volleyball at a late age, at age 15 competitively, when a lot of people start when they're 11 or 12. And so I just felt like I had so much more to learn, so much more to grow in the sport. And it was just such a passion of mine. You know, one that you see these amazing athletes like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or these people, you know, Roger Federer, these people who just talk about the passion of the sport, who just love it so much. I always, I never really understood that. And after I found volleyball, I really understood. I'm like, wow, this sport has changed my life. You know, I never thought that it could do that. And it, and it had. And so um, after, you know, that year, year and a half of, of battling, the thought of my head started creeping in like, you know, this, this might be it. I might not be able to go back and play. And I had worked so hard and it, it honestly was pretty difficult to even just verbalize those words and to, you know, share that with my friends and family that, that my time was over. It was really difficult. And I've always been a very mentally strong person. I can deal with quite a bit and this just really broke me. It was really hard. But luckily, you know, coaching did come into the radar and uh, I had been coaching camps at Oregon State since, oh boy, I think my freshman year, since 2012 or 2013, just doing the summer camps that us as players were required to do and just really found my love for the game there and sharing it with other kids who might be in my situation, you know, who are tall and who have the ability to be athletic, but need to really grow into their bodies or learn the sport. And so that was something that did help the transition quite a bit. So I started traveling all over the country, doing a bunch of different volleyball camps in the summer, and then ended up coaching at a really awesome school near my house in Colorado um, called Colorado Academy. And they're a very prestigious private school and really focus on academics and taking these kids and putting them into this athletic program and just watching them thrive and succeed in there was just a really encouraging and inspiring process. So that kind of runs through some of your coaching stops since you finished playing in the Philippines. 
how did you end up in Australia and going all the way down there? And what has life looked like since you've uh, moved to an entirely different continent? Yeah, uh, a big reason why I really wanted to play professional volleyball was because of the opportunity to travel. I've always had that, I guess, wanderlust and wanted to see the world and explore different cultures. And in college, I started dating a Australian who was on the golf team. His name's Tom. And it came time for him to go back. His visa was expiring in the States. And this kind of aligned with the time that I had decided I could no longer play. And we just found that that was going to be, you know, the next move. Why not? Why not come to Australia and experience a new place and a new culture and live here and get to do that with the person I love? It was just a kind of a natural, a natural progression that I think has worked out really well. So now you're in Australia and you're kind of in a transition phase now. I mean, you're thinking about new career fields and the doors are pretty open for you and you're open-minded in what might be next. You're a, a speech communication major. You're thinking about some media stuff, broadcasting. I'm sure coaching is always on the horizon and something in volleyball or something completely different. So mm -hmm. while you don't have a particular answer of what's next or what's your next career jump or where you might live three years from now, all those things are unknown and maybe that's exciting, but what's maybe a, a hope for you of maybe not even just what job you might have, but something you might accomplish or what person you want to become. Um, some of those things that are kind of broader, more hopes of what uh, the next few years might look like, even if you don't know specifically what job you'd have or how you'd accomplish them. Right. Yeah. I mean, thanks to COVID, it's really just thrown a wrench in this whole process, but you're right. It definitely does not stop the person that I would like to become. And over the time, especially being quarantined, having a lot of time to think, I feel that I you know, really would like to work with people. People are my passion. And whether that's in the sporting industry or whether that's being something like a nurse or a real estate agent, you know, like just these things that you get to work with people on a daily basis and help them accomplish their goals or their dreams or um, keep them healthy or teach them something new. I think that that's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I've always just had this love for people. And uh, so anything in, in that field, but Anytime that I can help or give or make, be a positive light in somebody's life, that is ultimately the person that I you know, would like to continue to be and, and strive for in my job. Last couple of questions for you and kind of going back to what your volleyball life started at and you kind of started late, but some people look their whole life for their calling and they don't know what they're meant to do. But when you topped out at six foot five and you became an outside hitter, was it clear that maybe you didn't know your full calling in life of everything for the rest of your life, but at least part of it was to play a tall person sport like basketball or volleyball? Uh, definitely. And growing up, I was huge into basketball and huge on swimming, actually. Those are my two sports. I was actually forced to go to a volleyball tryout by a friend. But again, it was that tall person sport and <laughs> someone took a chance on me and they, they decided, yep, we're changing you from basketball to volleyball. And, you know, ultimately it was a great decision because I hate running. I don't, you know, those people who like running, man, you guys are a special breed of people, but, uh, I just loved volleyball and I guess the teamwork and how every play is different. I just loved, loved that sport and, and being more of a dominant person as far as my height in the sport was a pretty cool thing to experience. 
it's interesting because you had that part of your beginning career of what your passion was and your calling was for college and shortly after was I won't say decided for you, but there was at least an element of it that opened up the possibility of collegiate volleyball in part because of your height and and that helped you play even professionally. And now you're in a stage of now anything's possible and, and whether you're six foot five or five foot four, you know, that doesn't really matter. You're in a new career field or a lack thereof even. And part of the most important element is if someone's passion is to help people out or or you're a people person, you want to interact with the people around you and develop relationships like you were talking about, a person from any job can decide if I'm a doctor, how am I going to help people? And you, you talk about how you help your patients and interact with other medical staff, or if you're a teacher, how to do that. Now you don't have the vehicle by which you're going to help people or interact, but you have the passion and the foundation underneath that so that Hopefully, whenever you find that job or that passion, it'll, it'll flow seamlessly into that. But we don't know yet, but my, my best wishes to you in figuring out whatever that may be. Um, let's close with, with a final thought to kind of wrap it all up and, and everything you've done at Oregon State. And since then is when you think back to when you started your college career and you're 18 years old, uh, when you first stepped onto campus at Corvallis in 2012, what advice might you give yourself from where you're at now to everything you've learned in the last eight years? What would you tell your 18-year-old version of Caitlin Driscoll? Oh, to just keep on going, keep on trucking. You know, this game that we call life is just so interesting. And I always am a planner and I look towards the future. And I'm, like you said, my college career was kind of decided for me. And now it's this unknown. And I think more than ever, you just have to keep on pushing. But in college, you know, that class you don't like, keep on going, that, that practice that you just feel like you cannot complete, keep on going, just keep on moving through life with positivity and grace because you get one chance to do it. And so just live for each moment and keep on going. (laughs) I like that. You've certainly had to work through a lot for knee surgeries and things you never expected to happen, but you keeping your head high and, and, hopefully have some amazing things in the future. So thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. And it's been fun talking with you, Caitlin. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, really fun to hear from Caitlin Driscoll and talk with another student athlete from Oregon State now in Australia. My favorite conversations are the ones where we just keep on talking, even whether we're recording or not. And Caitlin and I were talking a fair amount before we actually did that podcast and for a little while after as well, it was really fun to catch up with her and hopefully connect with some of the other student-athletes she knew at Oregon State that she's already recommended. Oh, you've got to get this person on the podcast. And so uh, my thanks to Caitlin for coming on herself and connecting me with more athletes that you'll hear on this podcast. As you can tell, there's a lot of student-athletes at Oregon State that have really cool stories. And that's the tough thing about this podcast is that I'm trying to not release so many episodes that it's hard to keep track of them and keep up with the pace. I've been putting them out pretty regularly Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'm trying to slow myself down to maybe only two per week, but there's so many I've recorded. Uh, Sometimes it's five or six at a time where I have recorded, and I don't even have them released yet, so hopefully I'll be able to stop myself, but it's difficult because these conversations are so fun to have and share with uh, all of you who are listening. So I appreciate whatever episodes you do listen to, and hopefully we'll be able to to release maybe two a week where it's easier to consume them at a nice pace and you'll get to hear most of these conversations. So stay tuned to the Beaver Tales podcast. Don't forget to check out childrensgarden.ph. 
That's the website, childrensgarden.ph. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. And as always, good night and go Beavs.